This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Law enforcement from six countries, including the United States, announced they had stopped an international cybercrime network that had infected over 41,000 computers with malware and attempted to steal around $100 million. It's unclear how much money they actually got away with. This is just one example of how cybercrime is having a significant impact on our businesses, personal data, and our security. Cybercrime is happening all over, from small villages in places like Romania to China to Russia. A new book takes us into this world and sheds light on some of the criminals who are attacking us using our technological innovations. The book is titled Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. The author, Kate Fazzini, is a cybersecurity reporter at CNBC, also formerly with The Wall Street Journal. Fazzini is a professor of cybersecurity at the University of Maryland. She also teaches in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown University. Kate, great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. One of the questions we have talked about on this show, and I'd love to start in this area, is for a long time there has been a question of whether or not the C-suites are giving enough resources to cybersecurity officials within their own companies. Where do you think we are on that issue right now? I think except for the really large companies, uh, the very, like, Fortune 20, Fortune 30 companies that – uh, we're not even close yet. For most companies still to this day, you have a situation where the top cybersecurity official is actually reporting up through a technology organization, um, a technology organization that then probably reports up through one or two other people to uh, the highest levels of the organization and, and the board. Um, that's that's very problematic because the technology executive has a bit of a conflict of interest, right? They're the ones who are doing the applications for the company. They're the ones who are making the purchases, and they want those things to go through. They want the budget that uh, they've allocated to go through, and they don't want a security person stopping them from doing what they want to do. And so... For most companies, that's a very old-fashioned way of doing things, Mm -hmm. and that cybersecurity person still doesn't have the visibility at the highest sea level that they need to have. We hear quite often that a lot of this activity is occurring in places like Russia and China, and and I mentioned uh, we'll get into the story about Romania in a little bit, but how much of this activity is actually occurring in our own backyard here in the United States? There is. There is some, uh, you know, one of the, uh, we do have, uh, as much as we like to say that um, we uh, aren't able to catch these criminals, we actually in the United States have a much more robust uh, law enforcement capability of, of catching these criminals. Um, I think that the, the issue, what makes us different in the United States is the People who are doing cybercrime in this country, um, especially if it involves kind of hands-on activities like going to an ATM or something like that, um, they're much deeper underground than they are overseas. Uh, That's partially because in a lot of, like, Eastern European nations, people are just looking, law enforcement just looks the other way to a lot of these crimes. Um, In countries like Russia and and, uh, not so much China, but in some other Asian countries, um, they will actually recruit 
criminals who show that they have a really good uh, a really good way of doing certain uh, cyber activities uh, in a way that they can then be used for government resources. That is not something that we do in the United States at all. You will never see the NSA, uh, you know, recruiting a significant cyber criminal into their organization. But you even uh, mentioned one of the stories you talk about in your book uh, to kind of give you a sense that it is a variety of people that are involved in this from a variety of different angles. You talk about uh, a 19-year-old Romanian student who kind of just somewhat stumbled into into cybercrime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the, the things that's very interesting, because when you go to Eastern Europe, um, and this is, her name is, uh, is the, uh, the pseudonym, of course, her name's Renee. Um, she just happens upon uh, lots of startups going on in her local community, uh, not really realizing that those quote-unquote startups are actually criminal organizations. And the reason why it's so easy for her to um, go over there, find a job, and then find out she's working for something very different than, than what she signed up for is because in Eastern Europe in particular, these organizations have become just like businesses. They have business plans. Mm -hmm. They have CEOs. They have customer service representatives who will answer the phone and help guide you through what to do if you have been the victim of uh, fraud perpetrated by them and how you can pay them back and and get your files back if if it's something that involves stolen files. So um, the, the organization's that are working against us are mainly based overseas. They just mirror our corporations. They mirror our own small businesses. And I think that's something people really, it would be helpful for them to understand so they know what we're really up against. The, the types of crimes are, are, are becoming more advanced, more daring, you talk about. And in some cases, it doesn't really even include, quote unquote, hacking, correct? Oh yes, that, that's that's absolutely true. And I would um, there's one word that I sometimes caution people from using, and and that word is sophisticated because even um, as these crimes have been become more prolific, um, the sophistication has actually been dialed back. As you see a lot of people interested in making money this way, looking to lower the bar for entry. So where ransomware used to be a pretty difficult thing to pull off, um, now you can just go online, buy a kit. You don't have to be somebody who's very good at computers. Um, It would be the same thing as, you know, you, a consumer, just buying antivirus software, um, installing it and using it. And it's, or, or some other sort of, I would say maybe a better analogy would be some kind of business software that helps you do your business. Um, everybody does that. You don't have to have a degree in computer science to do that. And, and criminals are doing that in the same way. So is this, is this the 21st century digital version of, of kind of like the old mafioso where, you know, <laughs> once you're in, you're in for life? It is and it isn't. I think in some rare cases, actually, I spoke with um, a, a researcher recently who, who said something really interesting to me, and that was that when these criminal groups got too big and and too business-like, um, they were much easier to identify. Uh, so yeah. there's actually an advantage in being a really small, agile business where you're, you're changing hands all the time. The other interesting thing with the, with the criminal groups is there's very much a startup kind of culture in that you will see, huh. you know, guys doing the startup. They, they, 
they pile up with either people in their town or people um, from that they've met online in the dark web or otherwise. Uh, they work together, and then they have falling outs. They will have fights with each other. They will have intellectual property disputes. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who made that malware. You know, you can't use it in your, and then he'll go off and start his own <laughs> criminal ring and, you know, re- refurb it. And, you know, it's, it's just very similar to what you see with, with a regular startup culture. I think that's what differentiates it from the old school mafioso where you're, tied to this great organization, even if the money is in some way flowing into right. those old school organizations, it's it's going to be separate in terms of how it's being made. The, the, differ- the difference probably with the example you gave with the, the, the development of, of a specific malware is that, that those people are probably not going to run out and try and trademark that as well. Right. Um, that's true. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that there's some degree of attempted enforcement um, another interesting example of that is uh, you, you might have heard of the term botnet, which yeah. is when uh, a criminal is able to, whether it's through a, a fraudulent email or, or some other means, um, to, unbeknownst to you, take over your computer yeah. and, and use your computer in a wider attack that involves many other um, co-opted computers that they have attacked. Uh, so we've actually seen uh, criminals who who create botnets and they sell. They say, okay, I've got, you know, 100,000. Um, I can sell you the, the services for a DDoS attack against whoever you want to attack. Um, and, and their rival group actually attacking the computers that they have already taken over and taking them over for themselves. So not only are they building up their network right. of botnets, but they are... Uh, you know, cutting out the competition. So um, I'm sorry, I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent no, there, that's... but I just think it's really interesting how, you know, the, these groups um, function in a way that, that certainly you would see many businesses functioning. Well, then when you look here at the United States and, and the various business sectors, and, and so many of them are potentially you know, can be impacted by by this type of activity. One of the areas I think that everybody constantly looks at just to make sure that that everything is in line and and the the security is as strong as it possibly can be is the banking sector. And maybe with the the medical sector close behind, but banking seemingly, you know, has to have as as strong a security as possible to try and prevent some of these uh, these potential attacks. So certainly that's something that the banks have, have been thinking about for many, many years. It's something that the Department of Treasury uh, has been thinking about for many years, which and Treasury is really the main organization that banks answer to on cybersecurity, which is, which is different than, than many other sectors. Um, and one of – this is a very interesting program that I've, I've always followed called um, Sheltered Harbor. Uh, and sh- what Sheltered Harbor is, it, it was developed um, – I'm going to say five or six years ago, I might be slightly off there, okay. but it was an agreement of, of all of the largest banks. So you had like the Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Bank of America saying, um, we need a wider program to back up literally every transaction that is being made every day um, in a, somewhere off site so that in the event of a catastrophic cyber attack, um, we are able to say, you know, Kate has 
$100 in her savings account, um, and we can reconcile all of those transactions because that is the, the really worst-case scenario that they're looking at. So, mm-hmm. yes, they've definitely been thinking about the worst-case scenarios. They've been actively doing a lot of backing up and um, trying to work together uh, collectively to make sure all of the institutions are, are on board with that. Um, and they're also – the financial sector is one, I think, that has – I'm always hesitant to say benefited from regulation, but I think that they've benefited from the fact that they've had much more scrutiny than many of the other. Uh, You you see the difference between the banks and what happened at Equifax, um, which which would have been unheard of at at a large bank. But it's because Equifax as a credit ratings agency wasn't being regulated. It wasn't under the same scrutiny, didn't have as much access to what the financial services uh, companies do. Um, and so you see some of those things falling apart a little bit when you don't have all of that collective energy. Well, then what is currently then the relationship between an entity like the U.S. government and these various business sectors here in the U.S.? Because I would think that, that to a degree, one relies upon the other in terms of assistance, in terms of uh, uh, of making sure that processes are, are being run properly so that neither is impacted by this type of activity. So that's, it, it's true. So there's, um, there are a number of organizations that, that work with, with different sectors called ISAAC, Information Sharing and Analysis Center. So like the FS ISAAC is the financial services version of that. Um, there are versions of that for the automotive sector, for healthcare, for hospitality, um, and so on, energy. Uh, you know, the now the Department of Homeland Security has designated a number of key areas. I think I think there are like sixteen now um, uh, sectors that they also are just sort of keeping an extra eye on. I guess you could say they're not regulating them, um, and that includes financial services, water. Um, large venues like the Madison Square Gardens. Um, and the problem with that is that there are huge gaps in between. For instance, one of the areas that nobody was covering um, were uh, was elections. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, and that was one area where we saw an enormous amount of activity. Now, uh, one of his last acts in office, uh, President Barack Obama, uh, did give elections, uh, elections infrastructure, that uh, DHS designation. Um, but you can see where that's certainly retroactive. Um, you know, there's, there were gaps, there are still gaps that exist. Credit ratings agencies were another gap um, that we saw that, that was enormously damaging. Um, so they're also vertical. So all the healthcare companies talking to each other, all the banks talking to each other. But there are certainly attacks, as we saw with with one a cry, mm-hmm. with the big ransomware attacks that, that go cut right across all of the sectors. Um, if if somebody in healthcare is seeing, if Merck is seeing a major industrial attack, I mean, I think the oil and gas companies would want to know what they're seeing on their industrial controls, right? Sure. But that doesn't really exist today. That information sharing, it's just all towered into those separate industries. Well, and I think a lot of it is also the concern in another area around anything surrounding energy and power to begin with right now. And because Mm -hmm. a lot more of that is becoming, you know, is putting itself on a digital platform. Yeah, it's it's very, 
I think it will be very interesting. You know, I, I don't know if you saw this most recent story about Customs and Border uh, Customs and Border Protection or Patrol. Um, the CBP had a uh, a breach involving yes. about a hundred thousand yep. um, data points that, that involved photos that had been used for facial recognition. Yep. Um, so that breach happened because a a contractor, a third party provider further subcontracted out to another, uh, I guess we could call it a fourth-party provider. Um, and that is where, you know, the, the origins of, of, of the breach came from. It appears that CBP didn't realize that that, that amount of subcontracting was happening. Um, but, but that's the problem in the energy sector, too. Um, you have software providers, subcontractors, others, subcontractors, and the list goes on and on. It is very difficult, yeah. uh, even for a really sophisticated company with a ton of money, to have visibility into all of your third parties. And and attackers, especially nation-state attackers, are not just going after Con Edison. They're going after the third, fourth, and fifth lines of, of subcontractors for a very good reason, because that's where the weaknesses are. Nobody's watching them. We're joined by Kate Fazzini of CNBC. She is the author of the new book, Kingdom of Lives, Lies, excuse me, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account at DanLoney21. So as we move forward then, where do you see the the biggest threats uh, surrounding cybersecurity over the next potential 10, 20 years or so? Um, I don't mean to hesitate because uh, I also, like, one, one of the things that I've been trying to do at CNBC as well is um, speaking to our audience, uh, there's sort of two layers of threats, right? There's, like, the cyber 9-11 stuff that, that gets a lot of play in the news. Um, you know, what is the big thing that's going to cause a lot of problems? And then what is, to me, the, the like, personal thing that is causing people a lot of pain? Yeah. I really think that the future... Of, of cybersecurity is going to be trying to stop some of these things that are causing individuals a lot of pain. So, I mean, everybody has heard the disaster scenarios, it's like Russia shutting off our electricity in, in the middle of winter. Um, like, it's easy to kind of conjure a lot of things that haven't happened, but, but what, what is happening is uh, last year about um, people buying and selling homes lost about a billion dollars to wire fraud, mm. uh, wire fraud that involves um, emailing you uh, just as you're about to close on your home from an email account that looks like your lawyer's account saying, hey, uh, Kate, we've changed the routing information for the wire. Um, you can send the down payment here. Um, it's just that simple. People have lost homes. They've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in down payment money in a single shot. It is impossible almost to get that money back. Yeah. That, that like ruins lives. And that's happened to a lot of people. And it's not the kind of thing that is really hitting the news. And that's what I think we need to have the, the technology solutions for. Because um, I think if I saw the FBI stats, uh, on this most recently, it was th- that kind of fraud was up about a thousand percent. Well, and you in the last year, you talk a little bit ab- about the reporting uh, behind mm-hmm. cybercrime and some of the things that are that are actually maybe being missed a- along the way. Yeah, and th- that's one of them, and that's one of the reasons I I think I say this in in the forward of the book, but I 
when I was working at, at J.P. Morgan Chase, and um, I, there were many times when myself and my colleagues would, you know, would be in the middle of something. And I worked in the, in the security operations center there, um, which was the kind of hub of where any kind of cyber attack information was coming in, um, and would have the TV on. We'd be watching the news about something that we knew was happening, um, wherever it was happening, it's it bank or anywhere else, and it would it would be focused on you know some point that whoever had leaked the information was trying to make right. um focus it would be often very inaccurate um it's hard to get breaking news right but you know there were a lot of inaccuracies and and just focused on all of the wrong things making people worry about things that they they didn't have to worry about in in the case right. of Equifax we had a lot of companies trying to sell credit monitoring after that happened but the truth is um, as, as almost every single intelligence agency has asserted, and the company itself has asserted, that data was stolen by a nation state for espionage purposes. Yeah. Um, it has never been discovered for sale on the dark web. Nobody has ever lost their identity because of, in, in the sense that it was not stolen and then credit cards were taken out in their name. Um, they have not you know, had their identity stolen because of the Equifax breach. But what do people think of when, when they think of that, um, they think of the thing that led to the sale of the credit monitoring services, you know, right. um, the fear that they have about their own personal credit. So it, it, I, I want to, you know, correct some of those stories, and I, I have. I've written about that, that uh, Equifax, you know, the true story of what yeah. happened to the data. Yeah. Kate, thanks very much for your time today. We're at the top of the hour. Thank you for coming on today, Thank and you. all the best with the book. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.